All right, so we're going to stay, for, we're going to be for a while here in this study of Hebrews because the, uh, the study itself is just so rich. Here's our, um, our title. This actually should be The Supremacy of the Son of God 4. I forgot to change that. Um, but let's, uh, let's stand for a second because this is our memory verse for the month, and so we'll be able to read our text and at the same time quote our memory verse, killing two birds with one stone. So here we go. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Let's take a moment and pray. Father God, we pray for your presence and your blessing and your, your spirit to be upon us to bring revelation and insight, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to us so that we understand, and not only understand, but uh, learn to employ the truth that we're learning here in your word. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. It's all about you. And uh, so, Lord God, we just pray your, your presence, your blessing, the working of your spirit. Lord God, do what you and only you can do edify and instruct, build up, Lord God, build us up in our faith that we might be strong warriors to be able to go forth from this place and be able to speak to this world, this lost world, about who you are and what you've done for us. So we pray your blessing on our time together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so in these first four verses of the letter to the Hebrews. The author wants is the author wants to establish a truth of the utmost significance. Everything else that he has to say will be rooted, will be grounded right in this these first four verses that we're uh, that we're looking at here this morning. Um, what he wants us to get is this idea of the unique identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing on earth that you can understand, the unique identity of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is not like anybody else. He is the unique God-man. He is the, the one being who is both fully God and fully man. In the creed that we, that we do, it says, um, for our sake and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, um, and became truly human. There it is. And so these four verses are establishing who Jesus is, and this is the most important. This is what you can build. This is what all people should build their Christian life upon. The better you know Jesus, the more, the more capable you will be able to be to be fruitful in the service of the kingdom of God. The better you know the Lord, the more you will trust the Lord. The more you trust the Lord, the more you'll be willing to take risks and be obedient to the Lord. The more you take risks and you're obedient to the Lord, the more fruit your life will have. And so um, this, this, these four verses are laying a foundation. 
Um, verses two and three elaborate on the fact that it is now God's son. In the past, it was prophets, it was other people who spoke to us, but now in these last days, God is speaking to us by his son. And the author outlines seven facts concerning Christ um, that he says are of vital significance. And these are like seven facts that are contained here in this uh, passage of scripture. So the first one is, God has appointed him heir of all things. Number two, through Christ, God made the world. And we'll break each one of these down. Through Christ, God made the worlds. Three, Jesus is the brightness, or the radiance, another translation says, of God's glory. Four, Jesus is the express image of God's person, the express image of God's nature. Number five, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Number six, Jesus by himself purged or made purification for our sins. And number seven, then Jesus finally sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things that's interesting about this first chapter is that Paul starts off by, not Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews slip, um, the writer of Hebrews starts off by comparing Christ and saying that Christ is better than angels. I don't know how that strikes you, but I know in reading it, it struck me as a little bit odd because angels don't figure very big into my theology or my life. I don't have any angel stories to tell you. I don't know that I've ever encountered an angel, although later on in this book, we'll find out that we should be friendly to strangers because in being friendly to strangers, some have entertained angels, chapter 13. So there is the possibility that I've interacted with an angel. There's a strong possibility that you may have interacted with, or an angel may have interacted with you. The Bible says of angels, and that comes up in this chapter, are they not all uh, ministers uh, of, to those who are heirs of salvation? And so God's angels, they, they, they're, they're like, they're, they're God's servants, but they are dispatched from time to time on our behalf to bring us a word maybe or to encounter us, who knows? But, the, but this fact of angels is real. And w the reason why I, I say it, it kind of was surprising to me um, that he's kind of choosing that thing as a comparison, that Christ is better than angels, which really was never, a, never something I had to give any second thought to or consideration to. But they were important and they were much more important um, to the people in the first century and people who were in the culture of Second Temple Judaism. In Second, Second Temple Judaism, um, there was a group at Qumran and they, had, they were very fond of a particular book. Um, and this book contained all this information that came, that was written kind of about um, Genesis chapter six and the th strange story that we, ha we have in Genesis chapter six where you've got the sons of God, which were angels, coming down and mating with the daughters of men. And this produces a race of giants or ones who are called in the Bible Nephilim. And, and, it, and these people terrorize and brutalize the world and the world becomes violent to such a degree that God says, I'm sorry that I made the whole thing, I'm gonna destroy the whole bunch of them, but, it, but, um, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But, so this had all happened and this was all the product of some type of an interbreeding between angels and people and this continued on in, uh, it, is, it is believed that Goliath was like a remnant of these giants 
what was left of them. And so the, the people in the first century were very taken with angels. Angels were a big deal to them. And, uh, but we have become so, I think, so accustomed as to who Christ is that we don't think of him in comparison to angels. But anyway, that's kind of his first move here is to let us know that Christ is better than angels. So these seven facts about the person and the work of Jesus Christ demonstrate his superiority to angels, superiority to prophets, superiority to everybody else. Jesus is in a league all by himself. He cannot be compared to anyone or anything. Jesus is the unique human life that ever lived. <clears throat> this, um, I gotta get into this just a little bit. I've been reading this book this week and just burning it up because it is such an incredibly good book. I highly recommend that you get this. It's called Dominion. It's by a guy named Tom Holland. I don't know that Tom Holland is a, even a believer, but he, the, the subtitle of the book is How the Christian Revolution Took Over the West. And what has really happened from this humble beginning of Christ himself coming into this world and offering himself as a sacrifice in fulfillment of scripture and, or in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and then establishing a new covenant, a whole new arrangement, a whole new deal with God in which sins are forgiven for his namesake and then launches the project of the church and the church in the last 2,000 years has literally transformed human society. That's true. That is, the world that we live in is so much different than the world that Jesus came into. The world that we live in is so much different than the first and second and third and fourth centuries when Rome ruled the world. The, room, the, the, the world was brutal at that time. There was no help, there was no, no law that you could count on, there was no police or no, uh, no security, nothing. It was just a brutal, violent world and if you were fortunate enough to be rich or had something, you had some possibility of having a semi-decent life. But if you were poor, good luck was about the best thing you could hope for. And so in, in, the, in the course of telling this story, he's showing how little by little the, the gospel of Jesus Christ has affected and touched the world that we live in. We are the highest example of its influence, okay? Our country, as I have said many times, was established upon biblical truths and because they understood that, most specifically the biblical truth, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and governments exist to secure these rights. In other words, governments only exist to secure the, right, the rights that you and all other human beings have from God. But we were the first society that really identified this, identified this fact that rights were God-given, not man-given, okay? Well, that's a product of the gradual influencing of the gospel over 2,000 years. So when the founders were putting together a new nation, they wanted something that reflected Christian values, and they made it. They, they, um, they put that together, and that's why it has been successful. That's, and, and, and so we owe everything. The, the reason why this book, I mean, it's like 600 pages, single-spaced with about an eight-point font. It, it's a dense book, but it is telling the gradual, systematic story of how Christians 
changed in the name of Jesus Christ have changed the world. And it's not over yet. It is not over yet. And so it's very important for you and I to pick up the baton for our generation in our time. There's, it's never been more important. The, the world has never been more in need. Our nation has never been more in need of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Scripture, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The need has never been greater. Our light is going dim because we, are, we have fallen away Certainly as a nation and as a people group, we have fallen so far away from our love and our commitment and our obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen, Pastor Steve. Okay, this is very important, and so that's why the book is so important, because it's, the guy's a fantastic storyteller, and he's just walking you through 20 centuries of Christianity and how the the gospel gradually um, became the dominant influence. So Dominion is the title of the book. Tom Holland is the, um, Tom Holland is the author. So um, in this letter here, these seven facts um, break down the, and demonstrate Christ's superior, uh, superiority to prophets, to angels, to everything that ever came along. He's in a category by himself. And we can break these seven points into two categories. The, 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 first, the first in those two categories um, shows us the glories of Jesus Christ in connection to his becoming a man. That's just something, now I know, I know everybody in this room knows that, but it's something that you've got to consider again. It's something that we've got to realize. Are you kidding me that the God of creation, the God of all glory, the God of all splendor, the God who spoke this world into existence, the God who made this cosmos, this incredible God humbled himself and became incarnate in human flesh and came down into this world and came down into this world not to be a great ruler or to be admired, or, um, it, but he came down in this, to, into this world to give his life a ransom. Just think of how, how re- crazy that is, that God himself reduced himself to a mere human being so that he could come into this world and buy us back and redeem us. This is why when we sing in the morning, and again, I I love the spirit of worship that's in this place because we're singing songs that are glorifying the Lord and this place should be filled. Every place in this world someday will be filled with the glory of the living God. That's the way it's, that's what's going to happen. You, You and I are just on the front end of this. You and I are just like a little bit ahead of the rest of the pack. They will all get here because at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will happen. Every knee, every tongue shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. So, um, the first of the, so the first portion of this um, speaks of the glories of Jesus Christ in connection with his becoming a man, his humanity. And then the, the rest of them speak of the glories of Christ, which are his, as the eternal son of God. They speak of his deity. He is, that's why he is the unique individual. He is both fully God and fully man. So the first, um, now, okay, so anyway, the first fact that we see concerning Christ is that God has appointed him 
heir of all things. Christ is preeminent. Christ is superior. Christ is um, uh, superior, uh, uh, superior to the prophets because he is the heir to everything. This is a logical condition of the fact that Christ is the Son. Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is the unique Son of God. And then, as a general rule, a son is heir to everything that his father has, right? And so when Jesus is identified as the heir, it means that all things are going to be given to him. Here's a, a passage from Galatians. Uh, we, we usually drag this one out sometime around Christmas time, but it's very appropriate for what we're looking at here this morning. Galatians um, 4, through 1, 4, 4, 1 through 7 says this. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, <clears throat> but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent, has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In other words, amen, you, we are... We are being blessed to pick up all of the trophies that Jesus himself earned by his obedience. I, I, I quoted that verse last week. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a trade. So I give to God my sinfulness, my lostness, my emptiness, and he gives to me his nature, his divinity, we have now been made partakers of the divine nature. He gives to you and I his spirit. And that spirit inside of, in, inside of us already bears a certain witness to the fact that we have become God's children because the spirit inside looks up to God and says, Daddy. Because that's what Abba is all about, right? Abba is a much more endearing term than father. It is Daddy. And so there's the, the spirit that has become our spirit because we have become believers and followers of Jesus Christ is now that same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead, which was in Christ Jesus to the, to the absolute max, to the absolute fullness. And, and, and so the beauty of this whole thing is that we get to share in everything that Jesus himself earned. We are now, according to the Bible, co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ. The point is that all believers have become sons of God, and we are also, because we are now sons of God, and ladies, please don't be offended. Um, it is not meant to be generic language, um, because remember, um, we are all one in Jesus Christ. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, right? So all those tags are done away with, so you don't have to be offended if somebody doesn't use a female pronoun for you or some other pronoun, let's not go down that road. But the point simply being that when he's speaking there of um, 
being, becoming sons of God, it is a generic term that applies to all. Of course, Jesus is the unique son of God in a very unique way because of his eternal relationship with the Father. But Paul makes it clear in Galatians that all believers are heirs to, of God as well. The, um, the result of the Son of God redeeming depraved sinners that we now have received in God's presence as his son, the, this privilege of being co-heirs with Christ. Here's how it's laid out in Romans chapter eight. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if, 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 here, American Church, is something that we have to think about. If, indeed, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That's a big if, right? And that's, again, just going back to, the, to my reflections on this book, you know what has moved the gospel into the place of, of preeminence that it is, the teaching of Jesus? Do you know what has moved it there? the suffering of believers. It is people who were martyred, people who died horrible deaths, but they were unwilling to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. It is all the way through the story, and it is the times when persecutions arose and difficulties and hardships and rejections and oppressions, and people stood. People stood, and they would not cave. And I'm afraid, it it, it struck me that the most valid, the thing that most validates a person's Christianity is how much has it cost you? Boy, it's quiet in here at the moment, right? But the thing that validates one's Christianity the most is what does it cost you? The thing that validates what Christ did for us the most is what did it cost him, right? He couldn't have done anything more. It cost him the very last drop of his blood. And then he commands us to go forward into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, teaching them to obey all things that I I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all the way till the end of the age. And so this great gospel effort, this great gospel movement must continue, must go on. And you know who's responsible for that? We are. And it's really important. See, we are soft in our luxurious lives. We're unwilling to face almost any difficulties, any challenges, any hardships. The things come along and we just get, we're full of despair and full of discouragement and, and, you know, thinking about throwing in the towel. And that also kind of brings us into this book of Hebrews, too, because that's where the people to whom he was writing were at at that time. They were undergoing persecution. They were going, undergoing rejection by c- close friends and family, people that they loved. And so it, it became so oppressive and so tiresome and, and so, um, so hateful to them that they decided, I oh, forget this, I'll forget about this Jesus thing, I'll just go back. I got my friends back there, I got my family back there, I got, everything is back there, but it, as long as I stay attached to Jesus, um, I'm rejected by that whole thing. And so they were facing this, this great challenge, and every one of us is facing that challenge on some level or another, right? Every one of us, and, and the reason why I'm sure, that, and I know that this is true, is because there still is a devil, 
And believe me, he knows who you are, and he knows what you're about, and he knows your father, and he knows your grandfather, and he knows your great-grandfather, and your great-great-grandfather. He's been setting you up, okay? And, it, and so you and I must be sober, be vigilant, for our adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, we may, he, whom he may devour, okay? And so it's important, him resist steadfastly in the face. So it's, it's important for us to recognize the nature of the spiritual warfare that we are in and then get on the armor of God and get active and get going. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to yell at you this morning, you know? But, I, but these, this does need to be said. Right to us as the church, in in the uh, in the next chapter, he's going to say, therefore, that we need to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we let them let them slip away. For if we neglect so great a salvation, how will we not be found guilty? Right. And so, and, and, and who's he talking to? Is he talking to lost people? No, he's talking to people who are saved. If we neglect so great a salvation. How shall we escape, he says, if we neglect such a great, so, so it's important for us, and, and I would put it this way, invest everything you can. Start right where, you're, where you are. Bloom where you are planted. Be an influence, be a believer, be a Christian, right where you are. Start with your family and your marriage. Another good shameless plug for our little Friday night thing, right? But start right there, okay? Because that's, that's where the whole thing is most validated, right? In, in the reality of a marriage relationship where you know everything about each other and you continue to love each other anyway. All right. Anyway, so that's, so I, I, I guess I just, just got off on this thing because it's, because it just filled me with a sense of what people have paid in order for the gospel to be believed and practiced and put forward another generation, another generation, and for the gospel and the kingdom of God to gain ground. And we can do this because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have more power in you because you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you. It's just a matter of taking a little risk Right? It's just a matter of being willing to maybe just identify yourself as a believer or call somebody up or write somebody a card or talk to somebody or just share your Christian faith with somebody else. Not to be a, a bonehead, not to be a Bible thumper, not to be a jerk, but th this is how this gospel was meant to be transmitted from person to person. And so anyway, okay, that was a little extra thrown in for free. <clears throat> Okay, so the, the background for Hebrews 1 and verse 2 is found in the Psalms. Um, oh, wait, I'm a little ahead of myself here. No, I'm not. Okay, so the background, oh, I am a little ahead of myself. Okay. <clears throat> oh, that's what it is. Okay, so the promise... Oh yeah, take, I'm, I'm sorry everybody, but I, I just, the, the, I'm not with it all together here today. Um, so our, our sonship depends entirely upon one factor, and that is our relationship to Jesus Christ. The background for Hebrews uh, chapter one is found in Psalms two, seven through eight. 
And, uh, and that's what's coming a little later on. Psalm 2 is also going to be um, featured heavily in this first chapter. And it's, and it's a, a tremendous psalm, a tremendous message in that, that message. And it's coming here in Hebrews chapter 1 5. Psalm 2 is a prophecy concerning Christ's ultimate future destiny as the king of Israel, as the king of everything, king of the world. And, it is, it, um, and, and so here's, here's how it is phrased. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, now, now this, this again underscores this idea that Jesus is heir of everything, right? I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, now in this psalm, this is actually Jesus who is speaking. Um, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for your, um, for your possession. Now, in this, in this amazing psalm, the second psalm, we have four different scenes that are being set up for us. The first scene is a scene of a whole lot of important people or people who think they are important, kings and judges of the earth. So the important people, and they are gathered together and they are conspiring against the Lord and they are conspiring against his Christ or against his anointed. You know that when you say the name Christ, I, I trust you know Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ means the anointed one. It's it, it, Christos in uh, Greek, or in Latin, um, Moshiach is, uh, is Messiah in Greek. And so um, Christ, is, Christ has this title, right, of being the anointed one. So uh, David says, um, the kings of the earth have set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one saying, let us break their bands asunder, let us cast their cords away from us, okay? So here, here's all of rebellious humanity and they're thumbing their nose to God, okay? God's response, he that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord, will, the Lord thinks this is funny. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his uh, sore displeasure. And then he makes the statement, um, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I, I, I've done this a few times because I've quoted this verse uh, more than a few times, but it always reminds me of a song by, that Bob Dylan did back when he um, put out a couple of albums for Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but back in probably late 70s, like maybe something like 79, this is right when we got saved, and Bob Dylan puts out an album called Slow Train, Slow Train Coming, right? And on that one, there, there were a whole bunch of songs that like, boy, these songs sound awful Christian, right? And then he puts out another album called, get this, Saved. Bob Dylan was preaching the gospel at his concerts. He was getting booed off the stage because he was sharing Christ openly at his concert. But the, the, the fact that, you know, what, what's going on in this psalm where he says, yet um, I will... The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure and say, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So Bob Dylan saying, of every earthly plan that be known to man, he is a concern. A typical, you know, typical Bob Dylan. He's got plans of his own 
to set up his throne when he returns. And so here are all the, all the nations, all the big shots, all the important people in there saying, and it's just like the world we're living in now. That's the amazing thing. Here's a, here's a song that's written 3,000 years ago by David, and it is describing the world that we're living in right now, a world that is hostile to God, a world that is resentful of God, a world that wants nothing to do with God and his ways and his rules and his statutes. The world is saying exactly right now what the world has always said to God. Let us cast away their cords. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. But then it goes on in, that, in, the, in the third section, and this is where that came up, this is where it comes up in the, in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is now speaking because God has said, um, I, will, uh, I will set up my hill upon my holy hill of Zion. So he says, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. So Jesus is saying, God told me I am his son. Today I have begotten you. Now, remember what he said a couple of weeks ago about this idea of begotten, right? It's very interesting the Bible uses the right terminology all the time, Right? Jesus is not made, so he is not a creature. When it says, I have begotten you, it's not talking about God making Jesus. It means that he, is, he brings Jesus forth. He eternally brings forth the Son. So the Father eternally brings forth the Son, and there's this ongoing relationship that we can't really comprehend because who can? I mean, this is, this is just too bizarre, too amazing. That three, that, that something could be one and three at the same time is just a little outside of our... Um, intellectual ability to grasp or to comprehend. But the idea being that Jesus is saying, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, which I'm sure Jesus has made this request. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for your possession. Whose possession? Christ's possession. That's what's going to happen. So here's the thing. Are we going to be part of this? Are you going to be part of this? Because you have friends and you've got people you work with and you've got family members and they don't know the Lord. Right? So are you going to seek the Lord and ask God to help you? God, open a little crack there somehow so I can step in there and tell somebody about Jesus or so I can love somebody or so I can bless somebody or so I, you know what I mean? Do we have that kind of attitude looking for opportunity to honor the Lord and inform lost people that there is a Savior who loves them? But I'm like miles off. Is it 1125 already? <laughs> Holy mackerel. <laughs> it amazes me. It amazes me. All right. Um, but this, this, we ha we're not there yet, so I, I get probably opportunity just to, to share one more thing. But because the book of, it is saying that Jesus is now, by God's power, has been established as Lord, King, Ruler, Supreme. He's top of everything, right? But Hebrews chapter 2 is going to let us know, but we don't see that right now. Here's, here's the way it's phrased in Hebrews chapter two. For in that he put all in subjection under him, and now in, in that he, meaning God, put all in subjection under him, meaning Jesus, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Oh, that second chapter, man, is hot stuff. It is powerful. It's powerful word in that second chapter. But the, uh, the idea behind all this is, yes, Jesus has been anointed Lord and King and ruler over everything in the cosmos, in the universe, right? Oh, I, 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 one, one more little thing. I have to take something back. You know, I've kind of got off on my, um, I wish I had, I wish I had done one more thing with this message, with this. But anyway, you know, a lot of times I have got up here and told you that I absolutely do not believe in aliens, all right? And I have, I have to change my mind. Because this week I saw a picture of Alejandro Mayorkas. <laughs> and if that guy is not an alien, I don't, some of you don't know who I'm talking about. The ones who do, you get it. If that guy is not an alien, I don't know what the heck he is. He doesn't, he doesn't even look human. Anyway, so, but in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who for um, I'm sorry, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Everything now has not been surrendered at Jesus' feet, but it will be, just as we were seeing before. Everything Everything will ultimately someday belong to him. He will be the heir of all things, and you and I will inherit it together with us. We got one heck of a future, everybody. We have one, it is unimaginable. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has, is revealing it to us by his spirit. We had an incredible future waiting for us. And so I'm just looking to motivate us or rally us a little bit this morning to kind of shake off some of the dust and shake off some of the complacency, shake off some of the callousness that we feel towards lost people all around us and ask God and seek God, God, how do I reach these people? What can I do that possibly might influence somebody for Jesus, right? How may I be a witness? And the word witness, the word witness in Greek is martyreo. Sounds like martyr. And the point, is, the point being that this side of eternity before all things are going to be finally set before Jesus' feet and he is going to be crowned king and lord, this side of eternity is the suffering side. And that's why it points to, right, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So this side is the side of pay the price, take a risk, do the work of an evangelist, get out there and be active, be proactive about the gospel and about Jesus and about all of it, about church, every, every bit of it. Be as immersed as you can possibly be, as you can possibly be. Don't be, no one's asking anybody to go to China, no one's asking anybody to go to Haiti. It's just, it's just, God, what can I do in my own little space right here that makes a difference and moves the, moves the ball? Maybe it's just another inch, but it moves it. It moves it. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So right now, this is the suffering side. The next side is gonna be the glory side. Oh, man. The next side is gonna be the glory side. And with that, I guess we've just gotta, we've gotta quit. 
but there is so much. He, Jesus is heir of all things. He made the worlds. Um, he is, the, I, I want to get back to that. He is the express image of God's purpose. He's the radiance of God's glory. These, the, the, all of these statements are so pregnant with truth, so rich with, with insight about who he is and, 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 and what Jesus is all about. It's hard to not kill 40 minutes on one of them when I was supposed to do 40 minutes on seven of them, I think. Oh, well. You can come back next week. We'll hear a little bit more. Amen?